Well, many of you may be aware that I grew up with five older brothers. They were from four to 12 years older than me. So I don't think I have to get into much detail to necessarily help you understand that as a young boy, I was picked on quite a bit. Smallest piece of cake, all that kind of stuff. Just, it just gets really old. They teased me incessantly. And I would contend that at times I was terrorized. Yes, I was terrorized. I remember one time I was locked in the bathroom with a wasp. As a six-year-old boy, I was screaming bloody murder and calling for mom. Now, I should probably share with you that the wasp was dead. (laughs) But I didn't realize it was dead. They had, with such care, incredible care, mounted the wasp on the faucet. And it looked like it was ready to pounce, I'm telling you. It was amazing. They had really done it well. And they finally, obviously, opened the door and... I recognized that it was dead. But that was not the worst of it. I would tell you, and again, I've shared this with many people, the worst of being terrorized was when we would go during the summer to the public pool and my brothers would just throw me in over and over and over again. And I can tell you very candidly, I don't like the water today. (laughs) It's not my favorite thing to do. It just isn't. And I do remember one time, though, very vividly, when they finally determined, maybe I was eight by now or something like that, and and they finally determined, we're going to throw him in the deep end today. And he's going to really find out what it's like. And I mean, I was flailing, I was drinking in the pool, you might say, and I was worried. And of course, My brother Art rescued me. He was given the assignment to watch me, after all. He was one of the older brothers. And uh, again, he did come to my rescue. But I don't know if any of you have ever been in a setting like that, where the waters are deep and the mounting pressure and the growing fear of potential drowning is there. It's not fun. And recently, I don't know how many of you saw article after article after article recently where families were caught in rip currents. There was just a lot of stories going around about the rip currents. And for those who were um, able to survive, very often the thing that they would comment on, it wasn't unusual to hear the phrase, I thought I was going to die. I really did. Our passage today begins with such a cry of desperation from the psalmist. Psalm 130, if you would turn there. Psalm 130 begins with, out of the depths I cry. 
The psalmist is crying out to God for help due to the fact that he feels like he is drowning spiritually in the depths. As you turn to Psalm 130, let me just say that many find this psalm to be one of their favorites. Calvin, Augustine, and it was also used in John Wesley's conversion. John Wesley was reading through Martin Luther's introduction to the Psalms and was deeply confronted with the gospel. And on that same afternoon, he walked into St. Paul's Cathedral in London and the choir was singing Psalm 130. And the refrain kept saying, if you should mark my iniquities, Lord, who could stand? And amazing as it may seem, Charles John Wesley had been in the ministry for some time and was a pastor at that time, and he would acknowledge had yet to be converted. But on that day, on that day, Wesley acknowledged that he certainly could not stand before a holy God. And the Lord graciously opened his eyes and he recognized that he was guilty before a holy God and was marvelously converted. Luther referred to Psalm 130 as a Pauline psalm. Interesting. The reason is that they clearly present the offer of forgiveness by grace alone without any human merit apart from any human merit at all. Forgiveness on the basis of God's grace and faith in his redemptive work. So follow along with me, won't you, as I read Psalm 130. It begins before verse 1. It says, a song of ascents. And then verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. More than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Lord, we ask by your spirit, speak to us. Speak to us as only you can, Lord. You know us full well. You know our hearts. You know our struggles. You know our challenges. Lord, we ask you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As I said, you, you may notice that the psalm bears the superscription, a psalm of ascents. Psalms 120 through 134 have the same note. And some read it as songs of the going up. It's thought by many that these songs are sung by God's people as they were making their way to Jerusalem for the various celebrations and feasts, such as the Passover. We could envision, and we should this morning do that, we could envision this song being sung by the worshipers on the eve of the Passover. It would help them prepare in some way that you and I might be encouraged to prepare in the same way for the Lord's Supper. It would remind us of the depth of our sinfulness, which the psalm does. And it would remind us of the greater depths of God's mercy and grace shown to us through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. So as we begin, let me just lay out the psalm for you. It lays out very simply two verses, two verses, two verses, and two verses. In the first two verses, one and two, a great depth. He talks about the depths. Out of the depths I cry. And in verses three and four, a great rescue. A great rescue. Hear my cry. And then it leads to a great longing for the rescuer. And finally, it concludes with a great and sure hope. A great depth, a great rescue, a great longing, and a great and sure hope by God. And this psalm and these cries for help are available to all who cry out to God. So listen in light of that. In verses 1 and 2, it says, Out of the depths, O Lord, I cry to you. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice and the pleas for mercy. The word depths, absolutely no doubt, refers to, as I mentioned earlier, the feeling of the psalmist drowning in trouble. He is drowning. The psalmist finds himself in a sea of trouble. One writer says the psalmist is engulfed in a death-like situation of separation from the living God. He is in the depths and God is seemingly far away in the heights of heaven. And I guess it would be appropriate as we begin this psalm. He is in the depths to ask, you may be in the depths. Are you potentially, as you come here this morning, is there something, something that weighs heavy, that in some way puts you in the depths? Well, unbeknownst to those around you this morning, that's where you find yourself. And so, you find yourself in a place that requires way more, way more than just your normal phone call to the neighbor, hey, could you come give me a hand? It's not that kind of a phone call. We could relate this phone call to a 911 phone call. A cry for help. Now, how many of you know the first question that the 911 operator asks the caller? Does anybody know? 
the first question the 911 operator asks. They ask, where are you? Where are you? Can you give me your location? And the psalmist begins the psalm by crying out to God and letting God know his location. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Yes. A call to the neighbor, a picking up of a book off your shelf entitled, When You're Feeling the Blues, is not the answer in this situation. It is a cry for help. Derek Kidner says, what's clear here is that self-help is no answer to the depths of this distress, however useful that might be in the shallows of self-pity. When I go to the ocean, I don't go far beyond my knees. (laughs) That's the shallows. He's not in the shallows. He's in the depths of a rip current. This is not a cry from those shallow waters. Psalm 69 kind of fills out the picture for us. A similar situation, it says in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary and my crying with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Where does the psalmist start? When he finds himself in the depths, he cries out for help. He cries out for help. This psalm, as well as others, reveal the most powerful prayer in the Bible is something like a 911 call. Pouring out, we are given permission in the psalms. Pouring out our whole bottle of emotions. Pouring out our hearts pouring out our anger, our doubt, our fears, our guilt, whatever it may be, we have permission. The Psalms clearly show us to cry out to God, to cry out to God. And the Psalm cries out to the only one who can help, doesn't he? Look, look at verse one. Out of the depths I cry to you, to you, O Lord. He knows the Lord is the only one who can help. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He cries out to the only one who can help. And I can say, you and I this morning can cry out to the same God. To the same God. John Owen, the Puritan, who wrote a book, a 400-page book on these eight verses, He said, the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction. That bears repeating. The Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave and under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. It was on account of that that I cried to the Lord, O Lord, hear me, help me, Save me. Charles Spurgeon said, deep depths beget deep devotion. Deep depths 
beget deep devotion. And we see here in this psalm a model for us to follow. No matter why we may be in the depths, we're going to learn why our psalmist was in the depths. But whatever the reason may be, deep depths beget deep devotion. And as John Owen said, it pleased the Lord, and he saw it as something that God used in his life. So based on his experience, the psalmist shows us the way. He shows us the way of dealing with these kinds of depths. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't disguise it. And he doesn't distract himself from the reality of it. We can do different things to distract us from the challenges and the struggles that we're facing, whether it be eating or drinking or binge-watching TV or whatever it may be. We can do things that can distract us. The psalmist doesn't want to deny it or be distracted. He wants to cry out to God. So what we learn here, first of all, as this model prayer when in the depths, is that we cry out from a depth, a great depth, to a great God who hears our cry, and he and he alone can provide what is next addressed he can provide a great rescue. Look at verses 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What becomes clear in verse 3 is that the writer is drowning in a sea of guilt and shame. The depths are a result of his own sin, of his own doing. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep track of all of my sins, Lord, who could stand? Rhetorical question, right? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is no one could stand. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one could stand. Could we find ourselves, this is an important question, could we find ourselves in the depths for reasons other than sin? Yes, absolutely. There is no question we could find ourselves in the depths for other reasons. But let me say, I'm often reminded that you and I live in what I would describe is a rights-oriented culture. We live in a rights-oriented culture, agreed? And, and this rights-oriented culture that you and I live in can lead down a path of sin. We heard that last week. Let me remind you. One author says, often we slip on the sins of entitlement and discontentment. We talked about it on Wednesday at home group. We are prone to be discontent. It's kind of that default place that we go when things aren't going our way. Often we slip on the sins of entitlement and discontentment down the slope to anxiety and depression. And we can become surrounded by dark thoughts and unmet expectations that weigh down our hearts and put a cloud over our minds. 
in light of that tendency that you and I have, I think it would be wise when you and I find ourselves struggling in despair, desperate, discouraged, beaten down, that we would take time. We would take time to examine our hearts. The psalmist, Psalm 139, you're familiar. Search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He hears our cries, remember? So when we find ourselves here, we, we don't have to wonder if we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We don't have to fear walking down the path of asking the Lord to examine our hearts and reveal to us anything that may be going on in our lives as it relates to sin. We don't have to fear that path. Like the psalmist, we have a God who hears our confession of sin and he forgives. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Is that not a wonderful little word at the beginning of verse 4? We see it throughout the Bible, don't we? That word, but. (laughs) With you... There is forgiveness. Now, I can say this. We may not find forgiveness with our husband or our wife. We may not find forgiveness with our children. We may not find forgiveness with our boss or our co-workers or a friend. And maybe, most of all, we may not even be able to what? To forgive ourselves. We walk in that way at times. But with God, can I say, there is always forgiveness available. Always. The psalmist knew this. That's why he cried out to God with his pleas for mercy. James Montgomery Boyce points out four important and really comforting ingredients as it relates to forgiveness. He says, first and foremost, God's forgiveness is inclusive. It covers everything. It is complete. There is not a sin that God will not forgive. You can be confident that if you confess your sin to him through Christ, that he will forgive you. It is complete. And his, God's forgiveness is also available to you Right now, there's nothing to wait. You don't have to earn it. You know there's no way you can earn his forgiveness. It is available now. It covers everything, and it's available right now. At this very moment, at this very moment, no matter what you've done. God's forgiveness is also available to those who want it. This is an important one. It is. Although this forgiveness is what? A free gift. Forgiveness is a free gift through Christ. This complete and immediate forgiveness is not just available for everyone, but to those who recognize they need it 
and recognize there is a Savior who forgives and recognize that they want forgiveness that comes through Christ because of his death on the cross. So, his forgiveness is complete. It's available right now. It's available to anyone who wants it and asks for it. And lastly, God forgives and that leads to godly living. Look at verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, I don't know if you're like me. When I read that the first time, I said, that's not where I would have gone with that. (laughs) But with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved, right? That we may love him. We may adore him. We may praise him, but not necessarily that you may be feared is not the first place we might go. But for the Old Testament saint, can I say fear, reverence, awe, loving obedience appropriately reflect the heartfelt gratitude of God's people for a restored and right relationship with a holy God. And I think that's true for you and me as well. Church, it would serve us well to gain this greater reverential fear for God as a result of unworthy sinners being delivered from the penalty of our sin before a holy God. One author writes, fear of God is a response to him which manifests itself how? This author says it manifests itself in awe and reverence, and it leads to obedience. So, God calls us to this place. And sometimes when we read the Old Testament and we think of things like that, we have a tendency. We have a tendency, well, they, they didn't know all the information. They didn't have the knowledge of Christ that you and I have. But be careful that we don't go down a road that's saying somehow, Their faith was different in such a way. The Apostle Paul reflected on the fact that Old Testament believers knew about the unmerited pardon and forgiveness that is available through faith. It's important to be reminded of that. It's always been this way. In Romans 4, he speaks of Abraham believing God and it being counted to him, what? As righteousness. And in verse 6 of chapter 4 of Romans, it says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. This is from Psalm 32 that Paul quotes. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Forgiveness is a blessed thing that we have through Christ. And Paul could have gone on to use verse 4 from our passage of Psalm 130, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So we've come out of a great depth with cries to the only one who can help, our merciful God, which leads to a great rescue, a rescue of forgiveness Rescue based on God's mercy. And now we're led to a great 
longing for this merciful God. Look at verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Appropriate question seems to be, so what might the psalmist be waiting for? He's not waiting, it would seem, to be delivered any longer from the depths of despair. He, he no longer seems to be waiting for forgiveness. He's declared with God there is forgiveness. And so what would it, it seem that he's waiting for? What does it say in verse 5? Every translation you will look at <laughs> says this phrase the exact same way. And so the psalmist answers the question of what he's waiting for. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord. He is waiting and he is waiting eagerly. He is longing for God himself. He wants to know clearly the presence of his God. He wants the intimacy that he longs for with God. And he's cried out for that. He wants that. And the point would be is it often would be the case that sometimes I sense God's answer to my prayers. And, and here, the psalmist doesn't just get the deliverance he was asking for and the escape from punishment that he rightly deserved and then go on his merry way. Thanks, God. I got what I needed. Appreciate it. I'll be in touch. No. No, he waits. He waits on God. He longs for God himself. He longs for intimacy that aptly follows deliverance and forgiveness. He wants more of God. Remember Spurgeon's quote, deep places beget deep devotion. He wants to know his God more intimately. Church, God is doing something in the waiting. As much as you and I are not into waiting, would you agree? We're not much into waiting I know I'm not, but remember, remember last week that tap root, that didn't happen overnight. That tap root that got to the source, it doesn't happen overnight. We wait. Allow me to relate this waiting to our spiritual growth, our sanctification. We live not only, as I mentioned earlier, in a rights-oriented culture, but we also live in a culture that wants what we want, and we want it when? We want it now. That's right. We live in a culture of speed. I'm going to get on my laptop tomorrow, and I'm going to order something from Amazon, and it's going to tell me, it will be delivered on Friday. And what am I going to do? Friday? you got to be kidding me. I have to wait all the, all the way to Friday to get what I'm ordering? I need it today. I need it now. Or at least tomorrow, right? I mean, 
That's what he's there for, isn't it? <laughs> and it's so true. We want everything right now. Sometimes we can treat our sanctification the same way. We'd like to have it now. And we can treat God the same way. God, can you give it to me now? Can you allow my children to recognize their need for Christ and trust you? Can you give me that job that we need desperately right now? Right? The psalmist is waiting on the Lord. He's waiting on the Lord because in some way, he knows this process is not an overnight process. Sometimes we have to recognize that sanctification is a process. Do you think the psalmist is never going to have to cry out to God again in this way? Is he never going to be to this depth again? Is it possible that something will drive him to these depths again? Or is he never going to need to be delivered again, never going to need God's mercy again, never going to need God's forgiveness again? After all, it says he's growing in the fear of the Lord. And it says he's growing in the hope that he finds in Christ. He's waiting on the Lord because in his word he finds hope and God's promises. Well, even though I know I have been redeemed, and even though I know that I'm loved by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and even though I live, honestly, with a blessed hope of his return one day, I also know that I still sin again and again and again. And again, the Word of God reminds us that this spiritual life is a process that involves waiting on God. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Those are important words, day by day by day by day. We are being renewed day by day due to a waiting and a longing and a recognition that this sanctification life is a process. So as we wait, I think we can acknowledge that God would call us to wait patiently. He would call us to wait, as the psalmist said, to wait in hope based on his word. And he would call us to wait expectantly. What does our verse say? More than watchmen for the morning, I will wait for you, my God. Now, when you think of that watchman waiting, right, waiting for the morning, you recognize that he doesn't wonder what's coming, does he? 
He knows what's coming. You and I may have long, sleepless nights. And just like the watchman, we know that what is coming. We, we know the morning is coming. We don't question that morning is going to come. For the watchman, it was a relief that the morning came. Because why? Because he has to stay awake and watch for the enemies. And he gets tired. We get tired. But the morning is coming. And finally, we wait patiently, we wait in hope, we wait expectantly for the morning. The morning for you and I, in some way, is that blessed hope, that day that Christ will return one day. We know that that day is coming. And we know that his strength is sufficient for today. But finally, verse 7 takes a turn in our psalm. Verse 7 shows us that we wait in community. We wait with each other. We don't wait all by ourselves. God has given us the community to wait with. And are we not encouraged that we have this group of folks? I am encouraged that I have this group of folks to wait, to wait with me. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. There is plenteous, another translation says, plenteous redemption. So what's happening? All of a sudden, the psalmist is turning his attention, his focus, to other people throughout the whole psalm. I'm in the depths. I'm sinful. I need your forgiveness. I wait on the Lord. And all of a sudden, in verse 7, he turns and says, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. I believe two things are happening as he turns to God's people. Two things. First, He wants others to join him, others to learn and trust in this incredible, merciful God. He wants to gather with the people who know this experience as well, just like you and I are gathering here this morning, to experience the steadfast love of the Lord. Alpha would be something that would reflect our desire and our goal that others would experience this incredible, merciful, loving God. But I think the second thing that he's waiting for is he recognizes what Ecclesiastes says. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. It's not a good thing to wait alone. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Sometimes we need help As we consider the drowning theme, we need help to grab on to God's lifeline. God is sending us, at some point, he will send us a lifeline. How many have seen those pictures of the helicopter hovering over the sea and somebody being down in the sea and they drop that lifeline and someone comes down and grabs the individual who's drowning and takes them to the lifeline and holds on to the lifeline with them and goes up into the helicopter. We need help 
sometimes to take hold of the lifeline. We don't have to do it alone. George Whitfield wrote regarding this verse, woe, to, woe be to him that is alone, for when he falleth, he hath not another to lift him up. When he is cold, he hath not a friend to warm him. When he is assaulted, he hath not a second to help him to withstand his enemy. We wait in community. And can I say, I am so grateful for this community. I know <laughs> just the other night, I mean, just a current situation where the Halliburton's AC went out. That's pretty desperate. That's deep water <laughs> in Florida when it's 96 degrees out. And uh, they went over to the, to the laws who graciously opened up their home and gave them an AC unit to use. And again, again, we are grateful for one another and the church. And we look forward to the day, as the psalmist concludes, when the waiting will be over. He concludes with, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. One day, one day he'll redeem his own from all their iniquities. What a glorious day that will be, will it not? The waiting will be over. And in the meantime, we wait. We wait patiently. We wait based on the sureness of his word and the hope that he gives us. We wait expectantly, and we wait in community. Let me ask the worship team to come. We wait. You might ask, can't the Lord, how many are familiar with this? Can't the Lord just give me a fast pass? Anybody know the fast pass at Disney World, right? Pass up the line, pass up everybody. Can, can we just get a pa fast pass through this sanctification process, Lord? For those who are familiar with it, there's a fast pass. Am I, as I understand it, nod, there's a fast pass plus. Is that right? And there's a max pass. Some of you could care less, but some of you care. <laughs> if you have the little kids, the max pass is it sounds like the thing to have. It bumps you right up there really, really fast. So, is there something I could do to get a max pass in this spiritual life and this sanctification process? If you think about it, you know, he could do that, right? He could do that. In some sense, you could answer the question, one day he's going to do that. <laughs> We're all going to get that pass that gets us through the waiting. He could do that. No more sin after Jesus comes back. How about it? Right now, God, how about it? <laughs> and God would say, sorry, it's not the plan to us all. It's not, it's not the plan. I end with this quote from John Piper. 
He's referencing 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay for a reason. Clay that needs to be renewed every day. Clay that can't stand on its own longer than 24 hours or on yesterday's grace for 24 hours. All, why? So that the surpassing power will belong to God. You can get in God's face about this. At times, I think we do in some way. Why, God, why? I don't like the plan. I don't like the plan that you leave me unsanctified and battling every day with depletion, having to be renewed on grace every day. I don't like the plan. I'd just like to be done with the battle. And God would say, well, that's the plan. That is the plan. And the reason it's the plan is I'm going to get some glory in your life. That is what we want, isn't it? We want God to get glory out of our lives. If I didn't do it this way, you'd get uppity about it. You'd think you had made it. You'd think your strength was coming from you. The fact that you've run out of gas, this is really important. The fact that you've run out of gas every day puts you in the station. And the station is me. He is renewing us day by day by day by day. And we need him day by day by day. His mercies are new every morning. While we wait, we come every day to him lest we forget the one whose divine power, as it says in Second Peter, lest we forget the one whose divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We wait for you, Lord, and we trust you. Pray with me, won't you? Heavenly Father, we... I acknowledge that I am impatient. I lack contentment at times, often. Lord, thank you that, as your word says, your mercies are new every day, and you have provided for us the divine power of the Holy Spirit that lives within us as a result of having placed our faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and his finished work on the cross on our behalf. He took our place. We deserved the penalty of death. And instead, he bore it in our place. And so, Lord, we afresh express our gratitude for your goodness to us and your grace to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust you to give us what we need day by day. And would you help us to come to you day by day? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.